Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. I'm J.R. Lowry. This is a new podcast series I've wanted to do for some time. Today, I am delighted to welcome Michael Alter, who I've known for too many years. Michael is clinical professor of entrepreneurship at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. He is also a three-time CEO, a member of multiple boards, a fundraiser for the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, married with three children. Michael, welcome. It's great to have you here today. JR, thanks for having me. Excited Thanks to be for here. being the first guest and being willing to be the guinea pig. All right. Anyway, so let's get into it. So I know you're from Highland Park, Chicago area. When you were young, just for a little bit of fun, what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? Well, I think after I got past the fireman and policeman phase, I really wanted to run a business at some point, whether that was an entrepreneur or whether that was, you know, as an operator. We had a family business growing up and I sort of got to see that and hear about it around the kitchen table. And that was sort of what I knew. Yeah. Interesting. Fireman, policeman, CEO. Yeah. It's a natural progression for most kids. What was your first job? So my first paying job, I would say, was I was actually a schlepper, was the official title. And I worked for a wedding and bar mitzvah photographer um, in the Chicago area. And I would carry the lights before the big weddings and events and set them all up. And I schlepped all the boxes. So I was the schlepper. And how old were you when you were doing that? I was probably just 15, like just old enough to be able to get a job. I was very much interested at the time in photography. And so I walked into two or three, there were two or three photographers at little studios, if you will, with quotes. And I walked in and say, hey, can I work for you? Can I have some help? And so one of them hired and it turned out, and maybe I'm jumping forward, but it turned out to be something that I did all through high school. And because I went to college in the Chicago area, I did it through college and it helped you know, to pay a portion of my education. And it was a great experience. Is that something that you still do, photography? I do some, not to the same degree that I did. And one of the challenges around that a little bit, so I sort of progressed and became a full-fledged photographer, if you will, working for this company, is it became a little bit too much of a job and not as much a sort of an avocation, which was a little unfortunate. Yeah. And that's always the challenge with things that you love to do. You know, Are they better mm-hmm. off as a hobby you know, yeah. or not as a job? But it's something I think a lot of people wrestle with you know, in yeah, trying exactly. to decide whether they want to make a hobby into a career. So you went to Northwestern. I know you studied economics. Why'd you pick economics? Part of it was I wanted to do liberal arts and I was also interested in business. And so economics was sort of a natural fit between those two, kind of a happy medium, if you will. I almost had a minor in US history too, which I was also interested in. Yeah. Then you went to IBM. How'd you decide to go to IBM? What put you there? Yeah, it's interesting. I wanted to go when I was leaving. It was actually not where I was thinking about that I would end up for my first job. And I got some great advice from a mentor, kind of family friend who basically said, you got to learn to sell. And so go get a job that teaches you to sell. And I was fortunate at the time to get an opportunity from IBM when they had a really strong, I think they do again today, strong sales training program. Yeah. Fundamentally, really, really foundational for me and for my career going forward. It's like a mini MBA. Speaking of MBAs, then you went to business school. 
what drove the decision to go to business school? It's something a lot of people in their 20s wrestle with. Is getting an MBA something that they should go do? What factored into your decision? So for me, it was a little bit of, again, advancing in my career a bit more. I could have stayed in the sales organization at IBM. Account marketing rep basically means I was a salesperson and sort of moved up that career ladder. But I wanted to be a bit more broad than just a salesperson. Nothing wrong with being a salesperson, but I was looking for more responsibility, more opportunities. And so going back and getting an MBA really helped that. And so for me, the bigger question was, do I go part-time or do I go full-time? And you know, when it, it turns out that you know, some of that's based on the choices you have in front of you. Yeah. And having gotten into Harvard to get my MBA was felt to me like a no-brainer. Yeah. Looking back, was it a good investment for you? It's expensive. Very much a lot so. of people question whether the top business schools are good investments anymore. Right. Now I have to answer that yes anyways, because I teach at one of the business schools, right? True. At the University of Chicago. So True. I have to say it's worthwhile. I mean, for me, it was hugely worthwhile in so many ways. You know, and, and a lot of my career is a bit of the shoots and ladders and left and right. And I think the foundation that you get from getting an MBA a school like that is very helpful. And the other thing is it's it's really like a grade A union card. Yeah. Right. And nobody can take that away from you. So that as you try to take some more risk, be more entrepreneurial, you can always get a job because you sort of have that stamp, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Chose one of the sort of traditional post business school paths and going to consulting, mm-hmm. in your case, McKinsey. How did you decide to go to McKinsey after school? Yeah, I mean, I could tell you a great fancy story about you know how it makes sense and how the sort of next career step was to go do that. But the reality is my wife was a year behind me in business school, and it was really expensive to be in business school. And we didn't know what city we wanted to be in when we graduated. And so I had a choice between consulting firms that pay you a lot of money. And if you leave after a year or two years, your story is, well, I didn't like the travel, right? And nobody ever questions it. Or I could have been a research assistant at school and stayed another year. I would have hated that. And so I took the opportunity that was helped me pay for my MBA was right in front of me that I would figure out what my options were later. And to me, the fascinating thing was I figured I'd leave 12 to 24 months and I stayed almost six years yeah. um, because I really enjoyed and learned a ton, but yeah. I didn't get there on a fancy path as, as much as I could probably tell you that. Yeah, I can relate to that. What are the key things that you think you took away from your time at McKinsey? I took away a series of things, but the biggest one is structured thinking and structured communication. And that I can put into a situation where I don't really know what's going on and be confident that I can ask enough questions that I can get up the curve enough to understand what decisions we might want to take or not take. And maybe more importantly, to structure the thinking to understand if there's a hundred things we could do. These are probably the three that matter. Yeah. And to get there quickly. Yeah. That skill set definitely has helped me as well. It's helping me right now, you know, being in a new place, you know, coming up the curve and learning how to build relationships and get a handle on what really matters the most. Right. And I also joke, I'm really good at PowerPoint now too. Do you still have a copy of, uh, say it with charts or the pyramid principle? I'm sure I do. I'm sure. A couple of McKinsey standbys. Yep. Yeah. I'm sure I do. Then you jumped into the startup world. So you went over to Sure Payroll sort of just before the dot-com boom. You were there at the beginning, right? I was there at the beginning. I wasn't my original idea. There were three other folks that were starting it and I became the fourth person. Two of them were, one had the idea they were more senior serial entrepreneurs that had done very well and were looking to sort of mentor some folks to build the business. And so I was brought on to get customers and my partner was brought on to do the operations and, and technology. But you know, it wasn't a company when I joined. There was an idea. Yeah. What was it like? I mean, that's about as different as it gets from 
being in a big strategic consulting firm. What was that transition like for you? It was jarring is what I would yeah. say. I had been entrepreneurial in college. You know, I mentioned the photography piece. I actually did my own photography business. I did some real estate photography and things. And so I knew what it was like to be sort of on your own, but man, six years of working for a big company with all of the resources and leverage that you have. And the first day I got to figure out how to, you know, how to set up my own email and basically do everything all over again. And with very limited resources, the first month or two, I was kind of looking at myself in the mirror going, what the hell did I do? But sort of once I got past that, it really turned out to be a great opportunity for me. Yeah. Did you foresee that you would end up as CEO just three years later or so? No, at the time I didn't. It was sort of the four of us and we were sort of a band of brothers, if you will, yeah. marching forward. And we, we didn't really care about titles and it didn't really matter. And it was only sort of as we moved forward and we had some institutional money, we had venture investors, that the more formal structure seemed to sort of take hold, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think it was that put you in that role? Well, you know, some of it is luck and some of it is happenstance and timing and a bunch of other things. You know, the reality is that the two sort of original founders who were, you know, already successful, we want to run the business full time. They wanted to sort of move to the board. And my partner had left the business after about 18 months because he's a startup guy. He likes that early stage bubblegum and yeah. band-aids. And today he's a very, very successful venture capitalist in the early stage stuff. And it's, it's where he belongs. And we brought in a outside a CEO from a public company into a business with, you know, 18 people, 20 people, whatever it was. Yeah. And it was just an absolute disaster. And so she left relatively quickly on and sort of it, it became my problem at that point. Yeah. I was probably not a great CEO when I started. But you learn. What are the things that really stand out for you that you learned about being a CEO in a growing enterprise? And there are a couple of things, you know, one of the biggest things I learned as a CEO is a little different than what you, at least what I was taught or what I thought, which is you're always supposed to have the answer. Yeah. And so you ought to be able to rule on high and say, okay, we're going left, we're going right, here's what's happening. And what I've actually learned and what I learned was that's actually not the best way to run and that I really should listen to my team and understand what ideas and what advice they have. And then once I sort of hear some perspectives, I can decide if I'm going to make a decision or I'm going to leave them to make the decision or if I'm going to let the decision play out a little bit yeah. longer. Yeah. And that's a really, it was a hard thing to sort of realize that as the CEO in control doesn't mean you have to steer the bus all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially as it gets bigger, I think a lot of founders, CEOs of companies as they grow, they hit a point where they can't do that anymore, but they're still trying to. And it becomes an issue for the company when they yeah. try and keep too much control over things as it, even as it gets bigger. For sure. And you know, and the other things around, you know, culture and managing people that are not sort of McKinsey consultants mm. is a really different game. And thinking about how do you manage and motivate and drive a business forward with a myriad of people that you have that are diverse that are right. bringing different perspectives and are critical to the company is really different than sort of an environment where you've got a relatively narrow set of folks who are all, they're going to work as hard as they possibly can, no matter what. Yeah. In some ways, being an engagement manager at McKinsey is an easy job right. or a lot of hard work, but it's, you know, you've, everybody who's working for you is like you say, going to knock themselves out. Right. And figuring out just how do you motivate and get the best out of your teams? Because People are motivated very differently, whereas I think in some yeah. of my previous jobs, they were relatively similarly motivated. How did you do that? What worked for you? Well, I think to me, it was a lot of listening. 
and understanding what matters to different people and letting people know that they mattered and that they cared. And so some of these things are just really simple. And it's amazing to me that people don't do it as much. But so as an example, if someone was doing a great job, we were in the payroll business, the year end is really busy. Our head of implementation, she would work tremendous hours to make things happen. I could give her a, you know, a bonus. We certainly paid people well, but I knew that, you know, she was a fan of country music. So we paid up and we got her, you know, third row center tickets to her favorite artists when they came to Chicago and and a limo and a hotel and a dinner. And she took her husband and there's no way she's ever leaving us because we understood what mattered to her and figured out how to deliver that. You know, we'd send. She never would have paid for that herself if you give her the money. Yeah, exactly. And so we created these memories. And so I just found that a fabulous way to motivate people. We had a, a senior technologist that we sent to Disney World with his family and on and on the list sort of goes. And I've just found it to be a great way to motivate and manage people because it shows you know them and you right. do what matters for them. Right. Yeah. You had to weather some downturns in there too, right? Dot com boom in your first year, right? Oh, and for then, sure. And then the financial crisis, what, seven years later. Right. And don't forget almost going bankrupt before that, not having to do with any of that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I joke that, you know, being an entrepreneur is is a little bit like it's not up and to the right until you're done. And then you can tell the story. It's really a heartbeat. And my experience was certainly that, you know, we were raising money on Sand Hill Road the week in March when the NASDAQ fell and sort of the end of the dot-com era 1.0 happened. And so beginning of the week, everybody would talk to us. People were going to get us term sheets. We were the coolest thing they'd ever seen. And we flew back home early on Thursday morning because nobody would talk to us by yeah. the end of the week. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, I remember that period well. It was a crazy week. You know, one of several weeks like that that we've had in the last 20 years or so. So right. you were CEO till 2014. You sold the company to Paychex, a larger provider of payroll services. What drove the decision? Why then? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we sold the business in 2011, and then I actually ran it as a division for them after that. That's right. As you're growing the business at some point, you're hopefully making the right decisions for the business more so than anybody else. And what's right to grow and build this business? Because we were, you know, we all believed in what we were doing and the clients we were serving and the people we were creating jobs for. And our biggest opportunity was we were in this huge market, but nobody ever heard of us. And we did a bunch of research and we learned that when we got to compete for a deal, we won our fair share. And even if we won our fair share, it was a good business. But we won against our competitors way more than we lost them. The problem was there were so many deals happening where nobody had heard of us, we weren't at the table. And so we had an awareness problem. Yeah. And the question was, how do we generate more money to drive awareness? And we were in a little bit of a box that we had. We could spend money on marketing and awareness, but it was really only based on the cash we generated. And we generated some cash in the business, but we were running this as a profitable operating business with real margins and, and real constraints. Like, like every business. And so when we sort of step back and said, how do we really scale this? What do we need to do? The reality is we needed more money to drive awareness. Some of that was marketing. Some of that would be some hires, a bunch of different things. And so it really made sense that the natural owner for this business was not us in our current capital structure. Yeah. Then it's a question of who is the best owner. And so then when we put the business out to get a new partner, we looked at private equity and strategics. And I don't think that's surprising the strategics wanted to pay a lot more than the private equity. And I think you know, you'd have to ask the folks at Paychex, but I think they're quite pleased with their acquisition. You know, going on 10 years later, it's, it's a good business for them. You know, you built a lasting enterprise. Yeah. I mean, quite honestly, that feels pretty cool. It is pretty cool. Most people can't say that. But it's also not fair to say that I, you know, there are a ton of people that built that. 
Yeah, it was three. Success has many fathers and mothers. Yeah, three hundred people by the time uh, by the time you left. Yeah, yeah. What led you to the Thai bar second CEO gig? Mm-hmm. So natural career progression from B to B payments business to a B to C consumer men's accessories business, right? Online, no, not even close. Part of it was when we sold the business, sure payroll. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do to do yeah. next. I didn't feel that the right long-term place for me was in a larger company. Nothing against Paychex, which I think is a great organization. I have a lot of respect for. It just wasn't where I get my energy from sort of going yeah. forward. And I'd gotten involved in some other businesses. I had a friend from business school who was the senior partner on the private equity firm that had bought the tie bar. We always wanted to work together. And so he asked me to get involved and sort of coach this young CEO they had just hired. And so I did. And I was on the board and engaged in the business and they just weren't thrilled with the results and the execution. So one weekend they literally asked him to leave and they called me up and they say, Hey, you want to run the business? And I was thinking, well, when else am I going to get a time to really sort of completely change my career from, you know, business to business payments and software to consumer internet? It seemed really interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, and it was a great, interesting growth story at the time, interesting brand, interesting business. And so I, I jumped. How did that second experience differ from the first one? So, well, the starting circles were, were obviously really different because it was an existing right. business that was generating cash and making money. Having said that, the, the size and scale of the actual business was much smaller than maybe I expected or was the right place for me longer term. And what I mean by that is, you know, we had a logistics and we had a significant number of people in our warehouse, but the best answer there was, you know, unfortunately for those folks was to outsource it. And so I joined a business with, you know, hundred employees and within four to five months, we're down to 12 or 18. And then we sort of rebuilt back from there in the areas that we were growing and scaling the business. And a lot of that was, um, there'd been a very successful founder and his wife who built the business in a lot of businesses you expect, they, they scaled it with them and a lot of sort of worker bees and we didn't have an infrastructure. So a lot of my time was building out the people and the technology, expanding us into retail stores and and things like that. And so after a period of time, it was business really became a fashion and marketing focused business. And the things that I love to do, the the go to market stuff, sales stuff, partnership stuff, just wasn't a big part of the business. And it just wasn't really a place I was going to get a lot of energy from in terms of what what they needed and the right thing was to keep scaling the business going forward. They were skill sets I just, I don't really like. Yeah, You could see me on the Zoom, you know, I'm not really that fashionable. Um, (laughs) And I love fashion in that business. So we transitioned the business over to our head of uh, merchandising who became the CEO and and she did a a great job. And, you know, her first love is, is that kind of stuff. And so that's when I transitioned out. And then you went in for round three. You took some time off, right? And then you you went in for round three with- uh, Yeah, sort of. I mean, I, yeah, I would say sort of. I mean, I think, you know, the biggest lesson to me in that transition or in some of those things is, you know, one is there's an old saying with venture businesses and startups, which is, do you think it's the horse or the jockey that yeah. makes the business, right? So is it right. the market, the horse, or is it the jockey, the team? Right. And I used to believe that if you had a great team, an A-plus team, they would figure out how to move you into the right market. And therefore you really want a great team. And I'm now a firm believer that I want to start with a great market first Mm. because it's way better and way easier when you've just got so much open runway to run. And I certainly don't want a bad team, but to me, the market is the first thing. And when I think about payroll and the opportunity in payroll for small businesses and that market and that opportunity versus 
you know, we were primarily a tie company when I joined the tie bar. Nobody wears a tie. And so it's a, it's a lot harder in a shrinking market. So that was a big lesson for me about where to go. And then the other big sort of career lesson to me was to take a bit more of a breath and to think through some of the opportunities and be a bit more patient than jumping back in. Hmm. I didn't want to take time off. You know, I could have left sure payroll and done some stuff for a year or two to sort of find the right thing, but I waited till the right thing and then I jumped right to it. And I think taking some time with sort of a process in mind of what I was really looking for and what I really wanted and would be good at next was really important to me. And it was really hard because I don't have a lot of patience. Really paid off for sort of how my career moved forward, if you will. So did you do that in between being at the tie bar and joining Vanco? Yeah, I did. And I spent about a year sort of figuring out what it is I want to do. And that's sort of how I simultaneously got involved at the University of Chicago teaching. And I got involved to help on the board at Vanco. And then when we had a transition with our CEO at Vanco, I stepped in as the interim CEO with the idea that we would bring in a new CEO. I didn't join as the long-term CEO. Again, when I sort of sat back and said, what do I want to do? One of them is I don't want to be on a plane all the time. And my wife lives in the Chicago area and this business was based in the Minneapolis area. And so she wasn't moving. So I wasn't moving. And I was fortunate that I didn't have to do that. And so I said, I'll do it for a while till we can find the right person and get them bedded in, if you will. Um, But it wasn't a long-term plan for me. And then full-time into teaching. Yes. Since then. Yeah. Yes. So how was the transition into academia? It's really quite, I really love it is is the only way I say it. I didn't think I would end up teaching or if I did, I figured I'd do it, you know, five or six years from now when I'm 60, uh, as opposed to, you know, I started teaching in my late forties full time Mm. and I just get tremendous amount of energy in what I do. I really love the flexibility. I love how it's fresh and new. And I love how it gives me a platform where I can now do lots of things. And, you know, again, part of the way I stumbled into it was this idea that I'm going to take some time and let things sort of play out a bit more. And I had been involved at the University of Chicago Business School through one of the faculty members, Steve Kaplan, who runs the entrepreneurship program. He's a very successful tenured chaired faculty member in private equity and finance world. And I was sort of been hanging around the hoop at University of Chicago. I was involved in their advisory program for the entrepreneurship world. They made me an entrepreneur in residence, which was really not... The idea was actually you're, you're meeting with students and helping them think through their business ideas versus you're spending your time coming up with your next idea. And I really enjoyed that. So I got a sense to see that. And along the way, I had been pushing Professor Kaplan that we needed to have a program that taught students how to sell because we do a great job in the entrepreneurial world of helping them build a business plan, think about the strategy, how to launch it, how to raise money. And then all of our other classes are about once your company's big, here's how you organize, here's how you do the pricing and all this stuff. But we don't do anything from PowerPoint. I raised $5 million to how do I actually get any revenue? Yeah. And this was back when I was at Sure Payroll. And so they ended up creating a course called Entrepreneurial Selling. They hired a, a really great professor, a guy named Craig Wortman. And he built this awesome class. And I used to speak in his class occasionally. And then Craig moved across town to Kellogg, where he was from. And it was right before Thanksgiving, right around this time uh, in 2016. And Steve called me up and he basically said, hey, Michael, you're not really doing anything right now. Craig just moved across town. So I need you to take over the class. And I was like, nah, I'm not doing this. I don't want to do this. I want to go run another company. And I think Steve had his own plan. He said, well, why don't you teach in the evening program? We'll teach it once in the winter. You'll see what you think. Maybe you'll do it again in the spring. And I did. And I just fell in love with it. And then I was fortunate that they made me this full-time offer. And, and so I jumped in full-time. And what I love about it is 
I'm now able to work with a lot of early stage businesses and growth stage businesses, either sort of an advisor or a board member. And that sort of balances with my teaching because I stay yeah. fresh and learn that I'm what I'm teaching and have variety of examples. And I can use those variety examples to help the companies I'm involved in. And so it's a really good fit for me personally. Yeah. And you can combine, you know, past experience, the board roles, which could you give you some experience, you know, the students and the things they're thinking about and your teaching, you know, all those things sort of start to come together into a nice portfolio. Right. You know, you're on a lot of boards, have been on a lot of boards. What, what, I guess, advice do you have for people who want to get onto boards and what advice do you have for people in terms of being a good board member? Okay. Yeah. I think those are two very different things, right? Yes. To get onto boards. I mean, some of it is there's a little bit of once you get your first one, it's easier to get your second one. Yeah. Because a lot of people just like in most jobs, they're looking for experience and proof points. And so um, it's the first one that is the hardest one to get on. And I would encourage you to be very thoughtful about what board you get on and whether there's a good fit with your skills. And if there's a good fit with the sort of chemistry of the organization, some of it is sort of stage and size and scope of company that fits what you're doing. You know, if you're a enterprise sales leader and you're going to go into an early stage startup, maybe not the right thing. You know, if you're a cybersecurity expert and you're going to go into a retailer that doesn't have e-commerce may not be as, you know, you got to make sure you sort of have those skill set matches. And I think today there's probably a lot of ways to find boards through recruiters and through a, a series of sort of advisory board online services. Or I don't think I've ever found one that way. I find it much more from my network of uh, VCs and private equity and folks that I know in sort of the startup community around. And so that's sort of, you know, I don't have perfect advice, except it takes time and it really matters that you pick the right one. And because you're going to usually be involved in these for many years. And you can only do so many of them. So you want to make sure, not just that there's upside, but that it's it's a good place you want to spend time. You can add value and you feel like it's it's the right fit. Yeah. And what do you do to add value? Adding value in, you know, I'm not on a Fortune 500 board. Sort of the level of engagement in where I am is probably a few levels lower because mm-hmm. of the nature of the businesses I'm involved in, right? Growth stage and early stage businesses require their boards to really provide sort of practical and strategic advice that is really can be down in the weeds if you need to. Whereas, and it's not to say that people on a big Fortune 500 board are not giving practical advice, but they tend to be more strategic, more longer term direction setting, and maybe a little bit more balanced towards governance than in a smaller organization where governance matters, but it's just not the same level of governance, you know, in terms of you've got 5 million in revenue, your audit committee is not that sophisticated. Right. And so, I think some of it is sort of situational and figuring out where you want to play. But there's a huge difference between sort of, you know, they, they, they talk about, I think it's uh, elbows in, hands out around the board table. And it's really the idea that you're not running the business. And the toughest thing for me in becoming an advisor, because, you know, some of it is maybe not a board role, but an advisor to a board or to, to the company is the balance between when I was at CEO and I said, we're all going left. Everybody had to get on board and go left or we got new yeah. people. Yeah. And as an advisor, I can say the answer is obvious that we all need to go to the left, but I have to be okay that sometimes they're going to still go right. Yeah. And it's the difference between influencing subtly the directions of where you want to go and sort of leading through the charge. Right. And, you know, it's not being a general, it's being more a diplomat. And so I find myself, I ask a lot more questions and try to work with others to get to the answer versus directly saying, here's what I think the answer is. 
And that's a balance. And the other thing I would say is I'm really, really particular before I get on a board that I make sure that the that there's the right chemistry between the CEO and myself mm. and that he or she will value what I'm saying. Not that they're going to take everything that I say as gospel and do everything I say, but that we have a good give and take and that they genuinely want interaction and help because you can't coach somebody who doesn't want to be coached. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a hard lesson for me. Yeah. All right. So that kind of gets us up to today. Mm -hmm. When you look back on your career, how intentional would you say that you've been in managing your career and how opportunistic? So, you know, it's interesting. I, I could look back and I could tell you a perfectly intentioned story. That makes total sense. And you think, wow, he was really thoughtful, but it was all sort, the, sort of you know, like your perfectly intentioned reason for joining McKinsey. Exactly. Exactly. And I could, I could do that, but it wouldn't be true. Yeah. And, you know, I think my career has been reasonably opportunistic in that I just don't believe you can always plan everything. A lot of life is timing yeah. and the decisions that you make, the results of those decisions are more about how you act and play once you've made that decision, what you do with the decision you make than just making that decision. Yeah. And I have a friend who has a saying, which I've sort of adopted as my own, which is when you're playing life, it's a little bit like when the tray of cookies comes around. If there's an oatmeal raisin cookie on a tray and you like it, you better take it. Because when the tray comes around again, it might not be there. Mm. And it's this sort of balance between I've got some rough idea what direction I want to go, but there's an opportunity in front of me and I better take it. And that has been really helpful when I think about, I decided I want to leave McKinsey. That was a bit of like taking a cookie. Right. There were a whole bunch of things that came at me that I could take. And they didn't come at me like when you're graduating from college or business school, where it's very much a parallel process to recruiting. It's serial. You right. got to make decisions. Right. right. And when the sure payroll opportunity came up, it met enough of my criteria. And I just felt like it was the right thing. So I took the cookie and made the leap because if not, they're going to hire somebody else. And, you know, sort of if you move forward, you could say the same thing about how I moved to the tie bar. And what I do now and teaching at Booth, you know, originally I could have just stayed as an adjunct and taught a couple of sections a year. And that's a part-time adjunct, but they made me an offer to be full-time. And I kind of knew that if I didn't take it, somebody else will. And it's not the kind of opportunity, at least for me, that's going to come up, you know, every other year. These are yeah. roles that don't come up that much. And I was fortunate enough to be in that position. So I took the cookie. Fantastic you know, was, school too. Yeah. We're in a great business school. Yeah, no, I, I can't complain about it. I'm, but yeah. the idea of, hey, do I pass on this now and go run a company for another five years and then come back? To, I just, you don't know if it's there. You don't know if the opportunity is there. True. Um, True. And so my big lesson has been think, but don't be afraid to leave. Yeah. Was there a point in time where you kind of felt like, okay, now I actually really know what I want to do? You know, where, where you kind of figured yourself out. And when was that? I would say it was in the last, it was probably like, six months before the pandemic started. So what is that? Hmm. Two and a half, three years ago, as I sort of got my sea legs into teaching, you know, I'm certain I may not be the best, but I'm better than I was. And so I got comfortable at how it works and how to be a teacher in this kind of organization. Very, very different than maybe yeah. I had thought. And the sort of the setup that I have for me that fits what I like to do and sort of, I get bored easy. So I love this breadth versus other people really love to run one organization and really kind of drive that hard and move that forward. And so it, it took me a while to sort of come comfortable with it and to stop making excuses to say, hey, I'm teaching now and we'll sort of see what happens. Sort of like yeah. when we were all at McKinsey and we'd say, well, I'm here now, but I'm going to be leaving at some point. Right. To say, this is right for me and this is a good fit. You're talking about a portfolio play really, which you mm -hmm. know is 
career portfolio versus career path. It's getting getting a lot more attention as people, you know, as the gig economy grows and we've got this great resignation going on at the moment and mm-hmm. people are off trying to figure out what they want to do and thinking more about purpose. What's your take on the career portfolio approach to your career versus having sort of one thing at a time? Well, I think the advice I sort of, you know, give a lot of folks that I'm involved with is one of make sure that you're learning from what you're doing and that you can feel passionate about what you're doing. Mm. Because if you have those two things, you can keep going and growing and it can be really fun and really energizing and very exciting. And if you're not, life is just too short. We yeah. all know it. We've all learned that. Yeah. And, you know, the biggest challenge is that we all get on this roller coaster and we compare ourselves to everybody else. Yeah. Which you shouldn't do. You shouldn't do. Right. But you do. Right. And well, you do. You know, it's natural. And we all have, you know, friends that have been very successful, you know, JR, right. Who are doing all sorts of really interesting things. And you start to say, well, maybe I should do those interesting things. And the reality is if that's not where you're going to get your energy and what's going to be passionate for you, it's probably not the right thing, but it takes a while to sort of figure out that that's okay. Yeah. Because in the end, we all end up in the right place if we're willing to take those chances. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. Look, it's a rare person who comes out of college or high school or whatever and knows very clearly what they want to do and does it for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. You know, most people, they change, they grow, they evolve. And 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 the biggest lesson is you can do that. Exactly. So when you're trying to decide between your seven good opportunities when you're graduating college, what if you pick the wrong one? Well, then you can change it. Right. Do your best and then jump. You know, you have the ability to interact with a lot of people who are in their 20s, who are obviously successful enough to get into the University of Chicago Business School program. What other advice do you impart on them in your class? I'm sure you go very deep on entrepreneurship, but just in general about managing their careers. What else do you uh, do you teach them? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. There's uh, um, Clay Christensen, who was a professor at, at HBS who, who passed away in the last couple of years, wrote a book, which basically says, how will you measure your life? Exactly. And I don't know if you've ever read it, but I actually take my class through it in the last yeah. day you know, of class, because I think it's really, really important to think about the choices that we're making now and the trade-offs we make. It's not wrong to make trade-offs. It's just, we need to realize the consequences of our trade-offs and make sure that they're the right things that we care about. Yeah. And understanding what it is that you care about. And it can change over time, but sort of where you choose to put your resources and where you choose to invest will the seeds of what you, where you plant will grow and where you don't water and you don't plant will not. Right. And just make sure you're making the right choices around that. And you're consciously doing that. So you don't wake up 20 years from now or 30 years from now and go, Oh my God, it's not where I want to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's very true. Any other final thoughts to share? Any books you're reading that you'd recommend or podcasts that you listen to? So, I mean, I would say, you know, a book that I've read more recently, it's a really, really simple book is James Ryan, Wait What? I don't know if you're familiar with it or know the history of it. No, I Um, don't. So he was the Dean of Education at Harvard School of Education. And he gave a graduation speech three or four years ago. And it's all about sort of the five questions and a bonus question we all should learn to ask. And it became this book, which has a you know a phrase from one of his questions. And one of his questions you should all ask is, wait, what? 
And it just like your teenager would ask it. And it's really kind of fascinating in that sort of way of making sure that you're present in all your interactions. But in my role as teacher, as an advisor on boards, the sort of these five questions are basically all I use. Yeah. And it's really uh, interesting. You know, it's a 70 page book. It'll take not very long to read. You can watch the YouTube video of his speech, which is even shorter, but it's it's really insightful in terms of how you engage and interact with people. And I found it to be you know, hugely, hugely helpful. Yeah. James Great. Ryan, wait, what? I'll have to check it out. Final thoughts. Anything else? No, I just, I appreciate you having me on. It's exciting. It's exciting to be the first. Hopefully I didn't set the bar too low that uh, it'll be good. No, you've been a great guest. We didn't even get to half the questions I had. So I'll have to do a better job managing my time going forward, but we've covered a lot of ground nonetheless. I think there's a, a lot of things that anybody watching or listening can take away from the episode. I appreciate you being willing to be the first, Michael. You know, it's uh, means a lot to me and want to thank you for that and for sharing your career story and the things that you've learned along the way. And for those of you who are listening or watching, I encourage you to visit pathwise.io, the website. And if you'd like more regular career insights, you can sign up for the newsletter and also follow Pathwise on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. So again, thank you, Michael, and happy career planning. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.